Hey everyone. First off, thanks for listening. Welcome to a very, very special edition of the Squad Pod. It's the Emig edition. Yes, Jeff Emig has joined the Squad Pod, and I came and believe it, man. This is one of my childhood heroes, and I can say that because I wasn't a journalist back then. And uh, but man, it was really cool to uh, do this interview with Jeff. He was very gracious. He gave me more time than uh, we agreed to. Um, man, it's a must listen, and I learned so much. He actually gave me a play-by-play of a day out at Havasu, Lake Havasu, back in the day with his buddies. A perfect day. And that's really what you want to get into when you talk to Jeff Emig. He's just a legend. He's done everything in the sport, and uh, we caught up with him after his Loretta's week. So uh, thank you, Jeff, for getting in there and talking to me for about an hour. You know, it was was awesome. But uh, before we get into that, and the Guts Racing Power Rankings. I want to talk about something uh, pretty serious here. Um, as you all know, my good friend Grant Harlan, he lost his shop. Uh, his whole whole race shop went up in flames. It was a complete loss. Uh, his family puts their heart and soul into his racing career. And everything was in that shop, um, except one bike. But his Supercross bike was in there. He had a couple of uh, kit suspension sets. Well, a few, actually. Um, You know, those are very, very costly, as you know. And uh, nothing covered it. So um, I I do want to clarify that his shop is not in Hawaii. It's in Texas. A lot of confusion on that with the Hawaiian fires right now. It's all weird how it happened in the same week. But, um, yeah, it was in Texas. Yeah, man, he had a bunch of, everything was in their parts. Um, tools, those will get covered, of course, but the suspension and the bikes, he had two, he had a 250 in there, and then his Supercross bike from this past season was also in there with a pit bike, three kit suspensions, and you can help. If you want to help, we put a fundraiser up. We have uh, three tiers of entries. Um, you can enter as many times as you want on any of these. Uh, one entry you can do is a signed number plate. That's for $20. A signed jersey is $50. And then the VIP experience is $100. Now you can enter as many times as you want. Um, we're going to enter everything in and, you know, mix them up and do a name generator, make it fair so that all these winners, you can have a chance to win. Uh, the VIP experience will include two passes to a Supercross race of your choice, a meet-and-greet with Harlan, a rig tour, catered dinner, a signed race-worn jersey. I'll probably interview you for Verb. Um, and then the Road to Recovery has stepped up to add a track walk experience to this as well. So um, thanks to the Road to Recovery people for trying to help out as much as they can. That was very cool of them to do that. So um, all these entries are open until October 1st. And then we'll announce all the winners on October 8th. To enter, you can uh, send your money to at Grant-Harlan on Venmo or at Grant349 on PayPal. So a couple different ways to enter. We're keeping track of everything. And, um, you know, each each ticket is a chance. So if you want to enter 10 times on the signed number plate, I'm um, doing the math real quick. Yeah, I don't know. That's a lot of money, but... If you want to help out that much, you can have that many entries into the signed number plate. Or if you want to mix and match, it's your choice. Uh, each each of those tiers is one one entry. So thank you again for all the help. Those who have donated, we really appreciate you. And um, oh, also the folks at Moto X Pops, the uh, hydration popsicle of the stars, may I add. They're donating 100% of their shirt sales to the Harlan family when you order through September 23rd on their website. So their merch sales, hundred percent, go buy yourself a shirt. And, uh, they have an agreement with mxthreadsco.com and that's where they, they get the merch. So at Moto X pops on Instagram for more info on that or for the link it's in their bio. And, uh, that was cool for them to step up on that as well. So thanks for that. Thanks to road to recovery for stepping up and thanks to you people for helping him out. He's already got quite a bit of, uh, help um from you guys so really appreciate that all right so uh, we'll keep you posted on that weekly until 
and then we'll announce the winners on here, I guess. We'll just do that. Why don't we just do that? Okay. Guts Racing Power Rankings for this week. All right, I want to preface this read with whoever's listening out there. If you need voiceover work, announcing, I'm going to give you my best announcing voice right now. And then you can just email me and hire me after this. So here goes. For 33 years, Guts Racing has prided themselves on being the innovators in seat technology. If you're looking for a comfortable and stylish place to park your rear end on your dirt bike, then look no further. Guts carries an extensive product line of seat covers and foam no matter what you ride. Use the promo code VERB20 at checkout to save on your order. Boom. How's that? All right, I think I'm going to have to go now. I'm getting calls now for uh, for work, so, you know. Announcing work is my next gig. That's what I'm working on. I want to be the Loretta's announcer. I want to jump in. I want to jump in with Wygant. You know, I feel like that's my next step on this, so. You know, truly elite vocals on my end. But uh, yeah, thanks to the Guts Racing family over there for for backing this and for everything they do with us. It's the best seat in the business. And honestly, when you sit on one, man, you don't even feel like you're It's like sitting on a cloud. That's how nice they are. It's the best seat in the business. You know, it's used by Hep Suzuki and uh, Rockstar Husqvarna. So if you want to race on what the pros race and sit their booty on when they ride, Hit up Guts Racing for all your needs. The Guts Racing Power Rankings this week, for me, I went fro number one because this interview is all you need. This is my chef's kiss. Like, uh, I might retire after this. And he, he gave me so much insight. I don't even think it's been shared on any other podcast or interview he's ever done. So we tried to get a side of Jeff that they might not have heard before. And uh, we caught up on his Loretta's results as well. It's... um. And why he goes back there and, and who he sees and just, just got an update on Jeff Rowe. So, um, yeah, you'll see once this interview hits, you'll see why he's number one. Number two is my good friend, Denny Stevenson. Debo, Den Dog, the man of many nicknames. Uh, he's known Jeff for his whole life. You know, they came kind of from the same area in the Midwest. And I think he knows Jeff better than anybody in this world. Their family pretty much. That's what he told me anyway. And uh, uh, Jeff, that's not even his real name, Denny told me. And I don't know if Jeff wants this out in the world, but breaking news here, Jeff Emig's real name isn't Jeff. It's Cam. Cam Emig. Can you imagine the history books right now? Cam Emig. It doesn't flow off the tongue as much as Jeff. But man, doesn't matter. I mean, Fro, Jeff Fro. Cam Fro. It wouldn't have happened, I don't think. It would have been a whole change of, you know, perspective back in the day, you know, like, hey, Camfro, come over here. Throw me a Coors. It just doesn't work. So, yeah, thank you, Denny, for that, for giving him his Fro nickname, for giving me the info of what you guys drank after the 92 championship. That was all you, bro. You know, and, and just all the good information you gave me on our text thread, it was awesome and much appreciated. So thank you, sir. You are number two this week, but number one in my heart. Number three, Ryan Swanberg. Swanee, Octopi Media Guy. So I've known Swanee for a long time, and I figured it was time to, to give him his due on, on the pod in the power rankings. The man has grinded for 13 years, 14 years really. It started in 2009. I met him when he was in uh, photography school, and he was at Minio's in 2009. And uh, from there, 2010, we joined up and we drove to about half the nationals that year together. We put our money together and and uh, just went to the races and, and learned. Um, yeah, man. So I've known Swanee for a long time. He has some of the cleanest work in the business. His photos are absolutely insane. Uh, so go hit up at Octopi Media on Instagram. I'm sure you already follow them. But that's uh, half of Swanee there. But... Yeah, I'm just proud of how far he's come and uh, just going back and thinking about our old times at the races. It's, uh, it's cool to see how far he's come. So good job, Ryan. And uh, hope to see you at a race soon, buddy. Number four. I mean, he should be number one. He is number one. I don't think he, yeah. I mean, he's number one. 18 and 0, 19 years old uh, for the most part of this year. He just had a birthday. So he's 20 now. 
But still, being undefeated in the 450 motocross class is no joke. And Jet Lawrence has, has that now, and he's got four motos left to do a perfect season. He already has the title, so like, why not just go for it, you know? No big problem there. But uh, Jet's number four. I don't really know what else to say. Like, we're witnessing history, and we should all enjoy it. Number five is uh, Julian Baumer. Yeah, Juju this week. Number five. He, um, you know, I don't know much about him, and I really should do an interview with him just to get his backstory. He kind of came out of nowhere this year. He's been a Loretta's guy, you know. I've seen his, nick- his name and the results there. He came into uh, Supercross Futures this year on a privateer bike. I don't think a team or anything. I might be wrong on that. I need to check my uh, my research here, but I'm pretty sure he came in, no team, just kind of came in on a Yamaha and uh, qualified first at uh, the first Futures race ahead of some pretty big names. He grabbed an Orange Brigade KTM ride and went on a tear this year. Uh, he won two motos at Loretta's, and now he's got a Red Bull factory KTM racing team deal for a multi-year deal actually so follow your dreams kids you never know what's gonna what's gonna happen he's got a bright future ahead and he's got Davey Millsaps in his corner and now you know Ian Harrison and Roger DeCoster so good job Juju let's uh, work on an interview and and get the story man this is a, a cool deal for you all right, that wraps up the Guts Racing Power Rankings. Thanks to the folks at Guts for having the best seats in the world, the universe, and uh, beyond. Now, it's time for Fro. Enjoy, guys. All right, so my guest today is a four-time champion and now a nine-time Loretta Lynch champion. He's done everything in the sport that you can think of. He's a legend. It's Jeff Emig. What's up, Jeff? <laughs> Uh, just enjoying a, a nice Friday morning here uh, after a great week at the ranch. Yeah, yeah, we were talking before we went on on uh, record here that you had uh, quite the week and uh, two championships. So uh, talk about going back again. Just last week as a whole, just kind of go through it. Well, I, I had um, I ended up buying this 300 SX bike back in uh, December. And I had taken a lot of time off the bike. I hadn't ridden in a while. I hadn't ridden since maybe May of 22. Um, and then there were a couple of things with some parts that I had going and some mods that I had going from Enzo uh, that got delayed. And one thing led to another. I didn't even actually ride until I think it was April 16th is when I finally got on the motorcycle again after taking like a, you know, close to a year off. And, um, and the first time I rode, I mean, I felt like a complete beginner. I felt like I'd never ridden a motorcycle before. Um, and this 300 SX is a new model, fuel injection, all this. And so there's some, some hurdles that we had to jump through to try to make the bike as good as it could be. Um, I'm trying to be nice about it, but stock, I didn't really like it that much and it needed the engine, um, is really needs a lot of uh, development. So, you know, suspension stuff from Enzo was great. The rest of the bike was great. The engine, not so good. And so spent a lot of time just trying to learn how to ride this thing. And then also, um, you know, trying to learn how to ride again. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, you take that much time off and and it really becomes, uh, you know, it, it's, it's painful to be out of bike shape and then to try to get yourself back in shape. I mean, it just takes so much time. I mean, I literally rode twice though. And then I called, uh, my mechanic, BJ Burns guy. I do these races with, uh, who lives back in Tyler, Texas. And I rode like probably 30 minutes twice. And then I called him and said, Hey, I'm coming back to the area qualifier at Swan. And BJ is like, when did you start riding again? Like, I didn't even know that you were riding. And so, I, I you know, I started this Loretta's journey this year uh, probably six weeks later than what really my cutoff is. Because I think for a guy like myself, I need to be riding pretty consistently by the beginning of March 
to feel good by the time you get to the finals. So I just was behind, you know, developing the bike wasn't, you know, it, it, like I said, we struggle with that. Um, but, and then also I did my qualifiers back in Texas. So I wanted to get out of Southern California. So I did the area at Swan and then, you know, a month later do the regional at uh, Freestone. So I had a ton of driving and, um, just a lot of obstacles in the way this year to being as good as I could be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, I, I mean, I took two and a half weeks off from riding when I had to go to England for world supercross. So I didn't ride the bike for two and a half weeks, which was, you know, a month before the first race. So it's like, you know, you can treat it like an injury almost that having to take some time off. So that wasn't good, you know? Um, so when I went to the finals, I just really had some pretty tempered expectations and also, um, you know, a, a real sense of, Hey, Mike Brown is literally as good as he's ever been right now. Like he's riding at such a high level. Um, I knew that it was going to be difficult to beat him. And, and then the thing was how, like, what sort of risk, you know, what sort of performance could I put in, in the vet classes to still ride in a somewhat safe zone, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so my expectations were very tempered going in. And then you end up uh, squeaking two titles out of it, so yeah, you're yeah, pretty, pretty excited about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, let's be honest about it. The only three races that I beat Brownie, he had issues. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the and the last one he didn't even ride. The second, the second to last one he didn't finish. And uh, when I won the first, uh, was it the first plus fifty moto? Maybe something like that. He had he had, he had broken a wheel while he was leading, so. Yeah, I mean, but probably realistically, four seconds a lap faster on a dry track minimum. You know, I yeah. mean, yeah. So, but, but it is what it is. You know, that's that's part of the part of the deal. You know, the format is to ride three motos, and you pretty much have to go rain or shine. And so, I got a little bit lucky, and and you know, when it was all said and done, um, you know, I end up with the forty and the fifty plus uh, championships. So. Oh, no, it's awesome. Yeah. And but you know, Loretta's coming back. You have the the heritage there from going there as a kid. Uh, it's it's different for you when you go back to the ranch because I'm sure you have people in your face all week. You see a lot of people that you know. Um, you did Radio Fox with with our crew. Um, just yeah. there's a lot of probably distractions, but it's also a lot of fun. So what's what's that like going back and seeing everyone? Well, a couple of years ago when I did the race, I really put a lot of pressure on myself to you know, to uh, perform really well. I hadn't ridden it in a while. Um, and I was a little bit nervous about going back again this year. Like I said, I was just, my mindset was to have a little more fun with it and not, not really worry about results, um, so much. And even, even results in the, in the, in the races was to try to have fun during the week, you know, enjoy myself. Um, and then also enjoy myself riding the motorcycle and riding the track because sometimes that gets overlooked and it's like, well, why are you here? You know, it's like, am I here because I have to have good results because I got a pro contract waiting for me? No, we're literally on the other side of that going the opposite direction. So if I don't have fun riding and racing and, and spending the week at the ranch, then what am I doing it for? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, you know, I mean, like, trust me, I didn't get any bonuses from anyone, <laughs> you know, there's no right. new contracts, uh, you know, in my, in my, uh, email right now because of the plus 50 win, you know what I mean? Right. Um, but that being said, you know, um, I camped there, so we had an RV, BJ Burns from MX University goes back with me, BJ and I get on great. Like I, I wouldn't like at this point, if I do any races, you know, I, I, him being there, uh, yes, he mechanics the bike, but he's equally, or if not better as being a coach and being like your, your team manager and everything all sort of wrapped up in the one. And, you know, at, at this level still, you know, it, it, it's almost necessary to have somebody there with that type of experience to, to kind of help you through the week because you, I mean, I couldn't do 
I couldn't have done that race on my own. You know what I mean? There's, there's, there's just no way. So we just had a fun time camping and, and, you know, riding the golf cart around, seeing everybody else. Uh, BJ has a bunch of riders that he, that he, that he coaches down there in Texas. So, you know, along the way you get to meet new people and new families, um, you know, and the, and these young riders that are, that are trying to achieve their best results, uh, of their career and of their time riding motocross and, and, you know, friends like the deaf family, you know, like to spend time with them and, and their son Wyatt and, and, you know, just all the different families that you, you know, run across, whether it's new friendships or old friendships, you know, people that we've been racing together since 1983, which was my first year there, you know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting. Some people at times think that there's too much emphasis put on results uh, at this event. Um, and yeah, there are a lot of other great, uh, motocross events, um, you know, amateur events that mean a lot to everyone. And if you're a, a rising star in the sport and a kid, you know, trust me, the, the, the industry, uh, professionals that are grooming riders to become uh, professionals, they're, they're not just looking at one of it. They're, they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when you look at it as a standalone event, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the most well-run, um, you know, motocross events in the world. And I love the qualifying structure. I love the fact that the racing structure is three motos. Once you get there, all three motos count. We race rain or shine. And how Tim Cotter and the Coons family and the group got all those races in, I'll never know. But they got it done. And that just shows their level of uh, professionalism and organized that they have to to you know to to do that and and of course you know so many people in the industry use it as their maybe their one event that they go to during the year for the amateur motocross scene to kind of check in on everything um and and maybe that's why there's there's so much emphasis put on it because uh you know if, if you're a company um, and you're spread thin across every discipline of off-road motorcycling, you know, and you're going to supercross events and off-road events and desert events, you know, whatever the case, um, you know, being able to come down to Loretta's for a couple of days and check out the young competition, um, maybe your one peek at it. And maybe that's why there's, why there's so much emphasis on uh, performing well there. Yeah, no, that's perfectly said. It, it's, it's definitely an event. I mean, qualifying twice to even get there, it's just, it stands on its own and it's, it's awesome. It's, it's a great event. You, uh, I love the fact that I can still watch you and Brownie, you know, go out there and, and rip it up. So it's fun for me to just watch and see you guys still riding. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, it, it I mean, when, when I do the qualifiers and I meet new families, um, um, uh, there are uh, families that they've never done this before. Um, like one of BJ's riders, uh, Colin Moose, his name's Maddox. Um, he rode as a 250C rider, right? So it's their family's first time there. And you look at what they put into it, sometimes qualifying, not just in one, two, or possibly three regions to try to go there. I mean, you, you really have to respect the effort uh, the time, the money that the families put into the sport and into qualifying for this event. And, and maybe that's why it becomes so pressure filled, you know, when, when, when riders come there, because it's, it's, it, to me, it's a full journey. I mean, even for myself, you know, with all the advantages that I have uh, within the industry as being, you know, I do business in the industry. I, I, you know, have, uh, you know, products and stuff that I endorse and, and whatnot. But I still, I mean, like I said on that Instagram post I put out the other day when there were some people sort of, um, you know, criticizing and, and questioning guys like myself and Mike Brown and uh, I mean, Barry Karsten, you know, pro, pro level riders coming back to race the bad classes. Um, you know, I mean, I spent a ton of money to do this 
and really it's it doesn't necessarily come out of the business fund you know this is still sort of you know you know at this point it's 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 some business but it's also hobby you know and i mean i drove over 10,000 miles this year doing the event and then also you know i don't i'm sure i'm sure the number was well 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 above $10,000 I mean, it's probably closer to 20 grand or something is, is what I spent because, you know, because I did the races back in Texas and things like that, but you know, it's not, it's not cheap. And I really respect, um, what the, what the families, their sacrifice and the effort that they put in to, to go do that race. Cause it's, it's a major undertaking. Yeah, exactly. And you, yeah, you touched on your businesses and the brands that you endorse, you have a lot going on. Um, it's hard to keep track sometimes, but you have your hands in a lot of different businesses um, and companies that, and also you're announcing. So um, how do you keep it all straight? And um, you know, what, how do you, you know, manage each business at like, obviously your brand, but how do you make sure you have enough time for each brand? I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah. Yeah. It's not as time intensive as you think. And I always look for synergy with everything that I'm doing and being authentic. Um, I, I, I have like, even with my social media platforms, like every follower and everything I have is, is, you know, organic, like there's no, uh, you know, that way, you know, if you follow my page, you know, there's a good chance that, you know, a massive amount of, of my followers are going to be core motocross people, you know, and then my products that I do, the grip stuff with ODI, um, you know, which has been just an incredible business and incredible partnership with them, just a, a fantastic company. You know, I have new partnerships with, you know, with, you know, with uh, the online marketplace called MX Locker. Um, once again, a lot of synergy. Um, it makes sense. Um, and you know, if things make sense, a lot of times they make dollars. So that's good business. Um, just doing some new deals with we big moto, which is the apparel brand, um, with viral brand goggles. So that's a new, a new partnership that, that literally just came together. Like finally, as I was driving to the ranch, you know, mm-hmm. um, elevate motocross um my the business i do with rhino power uh, as an affiliate with them um you know so it's to me it's all about being real and endorsing the products that i actually use and so i'm really fortunate that i can um be partnered with uh you know companies that make great products and they do good business and good you know people with very very high character you know moral character that's awesome. And it, yeah, you're yeah, like I said, like it's just a lot of different partnerships, and it's cool you're still still at it. So, I want to kind of go back in time a little bit and hit on some major points. Like when when I was growing up and figuring out what motocross was, um, you you were you know it was mid '90s, so you were on top. And uh, <laughs> I don't want to okay. age you out, you know, put make you feel old or anything, but. Um, there's a lot of things that I've done research on, but I kind of want to just hear your, your point of view on things. So I'm going to touch on a few of those. So, um, so, so Redbud 92, you come in, you win your first outdoor. Um, what, what changed from that day on in your program? What did you like, did you believe in yourself more? What, what changed that day? Because from that moment on, you went on to win the championship and, um, yeah, just kind of, kind of go through that time in your life. Yeah, well, it just it all has to do with the belief and a confidence in yourself. And I would say that that um, when I came in as an amateur, I had a ton of confidence. I had some good results really early on in motocross and supercross. Um, things wavered a little bit, uh, uh, you know, doubted myself some throughout 91. I actually won my first pro motocross moto uh, in 90 one um at redbud um failed to win an overall or to win another moto that year but in 92 my mechanic steve butler and i along with uh the 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 technicians at at 
at uh, Yamaha, where there was the engine guy, Bob Oliver, uh, John R., who did our, our, our uh, suspension, uh, Keith McCarty and our leadership, is we really started to figure things out on the Yamaha 125, which, if people remember, wasn't, wasn't the best production bike uh, at the time. And so we ended up turning, you know, a, a big weakness in, into a big strength. And once I won won the race at Redbud, I knew that I I knew that I could win. And we got the bike good, and I was in the right place. And we figured out this <clears throat> just our our weekend process. You know, we used to race motocross on Sundays, mm-hmm. and sometimes we might have like a Friday afternoon press conference or practice or a press day but it wasn't very common and it wasn't very uh, consistent and so what i started doing is i would fly in friday night so that i was there saturday and steve butler and i would always take the bike out on saturday mornings i would wake up at seven the same time that i would have to wake up on sunday so i would be acclimated to time he and i would take a freshly built bike out and we would find a local track somewhere. And I mean, sometimes it was like a cow path in a guy's backyard. It was like, we, 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 we try to call around and find some place that we could go ride the motorcycle for 20 or 30 minutes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we find a track. Sometimes it was some guy going, Hey, I got a track. Come out here. And then you come out and it's like, you know, whatever. But it, it, it and what we would do <clears throat> is jetting on on all the 125 brands were was really critical during that time period and and what we did is we would go out i would ride the bike and break it in butler and i would jet the bike and we would make it we like we would just get in sync so the levers are right you know the jetting's perfect so on sunday morning when we went out for the first half of practice i was ready to go Right. Mm-hmm. So there was no like sort of, sort of, you know, sort of like questioning anything. And, and times were way different back then. You know, I mean, that was 30 years ago, but we just were ready to go. And then once, once I won Red Bud and then just started winning some other races, LaRocco, who was, who I was really battling with in the championship, he had a huge points lead. I think it was at the halfway point, he had like 80 points or 60 some points. Like it was, it was, a huge gap and we just started winning and chipping away at it. Morocco had issues, um, bike issues, some forced issues, some not. Um, and I ended up gobbling up all those points. And when it came down to the, down to the, down to the final race, I was in a mindset. I'm going to go to Bud's Creek in the rain, in the mud, just like, just like a week ago. Um, I got to go win both motos to guarantee the championship. So it was like, I had the blinders on. I wasn't thinking about anything other than winning both motos. And I went out and executed two, two races in the mud right then, you know, and, and won my first, uh, pro motocross championship. And, and what's weird is the, the little bit of research that I could find is I, I figured out what you did to celebrate. That's, that's, what's weird. Um, do you remember what you did? Uh, what, what drink you made Which, perhaps after, which which part of the celebration are uh, you talking about? Just after uh, you won in the box fan, perhaps. What kind of drinks? Oh, uh, I, I think I remember like Budman and Denny Stevenson bringing yeah. over some beers or something. I'm not sure. Oh, no margaritas. Uh, I, oh, was there were there margaritas? I heard it was a margarita. Yeah, it was a. There uh, were there were yeah. I mean, luckily I was 21 that year, so it was <laughs> it was legal. But yeah, we we uh, yeah we definitely celebrated. That was a that was a good uh, good evening. And then the next day, we flew home. The next morning, went to Newport Beach for the day and had a good time. I mean, it's it's hard to put into words um, unless somebody's lived it. What those championship runs are like and what the pressure is like, especially as a young twenty one year old, and you know how focused you get on that and how. The, the fruits of your effort can can um, be harvested in years to come. You know, I mean, here, I mean, that was that was thirty thirty one years ago, and we're talking about it. You know, so yeah, I mean, these are big moments. Like I, like I was two then, and I don't want to keep dating you on that, but like I, you know, when if I unless I asked you, like I wouldn't even have any idea of unless I go back and watch it. Mm-hmm. But then again, you know, you talked about it a little bit before, but you know. 
Like the night the lights went out in Vegas, you got your first 250 mm-hmm. win. Um, was there yeah. a weird vibe at that race that day? Um, in Jeremy's book, oh, yeah. he, he kind of said there was like a riders union going on and um, talks of that, but um, just kind of walk through that day and how weird it felt. And then you went on and have your, your 250 win, you know? Yeah. So that, that was interesting because, um, first off, I was just knocking on the door that you're trying to get a win. I was just a couple of clicks off and just, and just, you know, of course, during that time period, McGrath was really dominant. He had just found the formula, uh, and everybody else was kind of searching. Um, but for sure, the fact that we didn't have any sort of championship points fund, that was on everybody's mind. And there, at the time, there had been a couple different attempts where there were some individuals that were pushing for a some sort of writer's union, some sort of group, uh, like, let's get together um, as, one, as one group uh, and have one voice. Um, and... I think a majority of the athletes felt like, Hey, you know, Supercross is growing and you're not paying a shit. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that day, that morning, there was a, a, some sort of letter that, you know, floated around like a physical piece of paper, you know, that like a pamphlet or a letter that, that was being floated around about writers banding together and, at the time, we had three different promoting groups. So you had Mickey Thompson Entertainment Group on the on the West Coast. I believe it was called Pace. Uh, so Gary Becker and his group, I believe they were they had the races in the middle of the country, and then the West Brothers had the races on the East Coast. And and that's how I remember it. I mean, I could be off a little bit, but I remember there there being like three promoting groups that made up supercross and and it's like there was kind of talk of of like we need to boycott and blah blah you know sort of words and attitudes like that and then there was an issue with the lights and everyone was like hey let's not race we'll you know we'll twist the arm of these of these uh you know these uh, promoters and make them pay us. And like, it was very, very, uh, political. And I had, you know, there was a lot of tension around the pits and writers are talking and blah, blah, blah. And, um, my team manager at the time was, uh, Keith McCarty mm-hmm. and Keith, Keith's a pretty, a pretty smart guy. You know, he says, look, he says, if you think that by not riding tonight, that you're going to force these promoters to give you something that you're not, that they're not giving you now, you are sadly mistaken. He goes, this is not going to be the way to do it. Okay. And he also was like, look, you worked your ass off this week. Also, you're trying to win your first 250 supercross, right? And you're having a good day. You know, you're by not racing, you know, that's just not the right answer. And also the fact that there were fans in the stands that came there to see us raise. And of course, you know, there were a few of us that broke ranks. Um, I felt like I was going to do what was best for me and what my values were and what I wanted to do. And the biggest thing was, was the fans were there to watch us raise. Um, so I, they, they installed some artificial lighting, you know, that, the the, the you know, diesel generator powered lighting, um, around the stadium. And it wasn't great, but it certainly wasn't bad. I mean, I used to go ride star West on Tuesday nights to practice where I would go practice at night because it would force me to like have to focus more and all these other little things. I'm like, I go ride Paris for free on Tuesday nights. Uh, and it's, (laughs) and it's darker than this, you know? And Larry Ward and I were really tied in points for second in the championship. And there was some, uh, you know, there were certainly some championship bonuses on the line. And so we're all kind of like, oh, are you going to go? Are you going to go? I'm gonna, I'm not going to go. Are you going to go? And, and, and so in the end, the guys like Larry Ward and I decided, Hey, we're going to, we're going to ride. And, and some didn't. Um, 
and then I end up winning winning the main event, you know. And at the time, I mean, I had like a fifty thousand dollar race win bonus, which was huge at the time. You know, it's like, yeah, hey, it was good money. It is, you know. And I get my name in the in the record books and all these sort of things. But it wasn't it wasn't about that, you know. It was about the fans are there to watch this race. I think it's safe to ride, so I'm going to race. And what was interesting is uh, uh, I think it was Bill West. I seen him after the race because all of the all of the uh, promoters were there that night. And like I said, there was a lot of tension, like shit was going down, you know? And I seen him after I came off the podium, I seen Bill West. He comes up to me and pulls me aside and he says, Hey, I really want to thank you for racing tonight. He goes, I think it was the right decision. And we talked and I was like, you guys have got to get us a points fund. This is bullshit, dude. (laughs) You know, like we still go out and promote it, did the race for you. Okay but you guys have got to get something going in the future. And I think maybe Gary Becker had popped his, his head in at that time too, if I remember correctly and, you know, shook my hand. Hey, thanks for racing. And if I remember correctly, like this wouldn't even been their race. You know, this would have been a Mickey Thompson entertainment group uh, promoted event. Um, And it it was, you kind of saved the day, but then also the riders that didn't ride, they made their point. And it was like, you know, at the time, if McGrath wasn't in the race, then you didn't beat the best. You know, we there, there's no there's no denying that. But guys like LaRocco, Kodrowski, Lampson, you know, uh, McGrath, a bunch of these guys, they didn't race. So it was kind of like, okay, the fans got a race. Uh, the the rest of the group put their foot down, um, and in the end, uh, that's when the the next year is when the um, you know the you know the uh, promoting group uh, came up with a with a championship points fund. That's interesting, and I always thought it was ironic that the, the <clears throat> lights had a problem when this letter just circulates. It was just kind of like, was that was that related? Like I don't know. I just it was a weird. Yeah, who was it that went and pulled the fuse? Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Like Somebody, some kind of vendetta. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, who knows? I mean. <laughs> You know, but that's that's the way things happen in life. There's just weird coincidence, coincidental situations that you're like, there's really no rhyme or reason. Why did that happen that night of all nights? You know, at a stadium. Like, when's the last time the lights went out at a at a, at a stadium on a perfectly clear, you know, <laughs> night? Or, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. weird. But, uh, yeah, the next year, you, you get the next one you get at home. You end. Uh, you're you're the sole reason that there's no perfect Supercross season. So thank you for that. You got yeah. your, your, you ended MC's win streak um, in front of your home crowd. Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard um, McGrath's side of the story on how his day was a little bit disrupted from what his normal day would have been, and, and you know, I certainly lived my my story. Um, but it was one of those nights where um, everything just came together. I mean, in 96, uh, McGrath was really as good as he had been up to that point and, and again, was virtually unbeatable. Um, there were a couple races that, that I felt like uh, I had a legitimate shot to win. Um, Houston, Indianapolis, a couple of races like that where I just threw it away, you know, had some issues and, and you know, he just kept clicking them off. And, you know, I always ask myself, like, why – like why in 96 was, was I the only rider that could beat him? Why in 97 was, was I the rider that, that was able to win a supercross championship within his span of winning titles? You know, I mean, that was mm-hmm. an eight year span. He won seven, yeah. you know, um, when, you know, to be honest with you, like, I mean, guys like, Kudrowski, LaRocco, Wyndham, Ezra Lusk, you know, Bradshaw. There were a lot of riders that were probably better supercross riders than I was, you know, to be honest. I mean, um, I just, I just struggled with confidence in supercross, but in that time period is when I was able to, to get my head straight and, and have that belief and have that confidence in myself and also the desire that like, okay, I'm not going to settle for second. And if you think about it during that time period, I won seven 
premier class main events. That one in ninety five, one in ninety six, and five in ninety seven. That's it. Seven. Okay. Uh, Wyndham and Bradshaw and those guys are like 18, 20, you know, like, you know, Lusk is probably upwards around 15, you know, for his, for his, uh, you know, for his uh, career. Um, and even though I, I wasn't getting the job done and wasn't winning, I just never, I just never accepted um, second. Like I wasn't settling into second. You know what I mean? Yeah, you never settled. And I never settled, even though it was like you know, most people were like, "Yeah, he's he's not he's not getting it done. He's not he's not riding at at a level that he can win these races." But I just didn't settle for that. And um, and I think that maybe just a pure desire, um, and then also the the the, the sort of one on one. competition that uh, McGrath and I had, you know, this, this sort of rivalry that, that now becomes, uh, you know, such a infamous part of motocross and supercross history from the nineties, you know, um, that it just motivates you differently. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, and you also measured against the, the, the competition that you, you know, that you beat. You know what I mean? And it used to bug me a lot when David Bailey would call races and, and, you know, especially when it came to supercross races, it's like McGrath did everything right. Everybody else sucks. They did, they didn't do anything right. You know, they, and it's like, well, if, if, if I'm in second and I'm not that good, well, what did he really achieve? You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I, and I know that once it was my time to broadcast, um, even though Dave is a good friend of mine, I really, I mean, legendary human being, just, you know, we're two different types of broadcasters, you know, and I just, I, I, I came in with that life experience of like, no, I'm not the, the first loser, you know, type of thing. And not that David said first loser, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but, but, you know, the, the guy in second, third is pretty damn good too, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, um, and, and then that builds up your winner. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's funny. Yeah. Back in the day, Art Ekman, David Bailey and David Coombs, that was the, the team. And then you and Ralph took over and you guys are like peanut butter and jelly. I, me and yeah. Ralph. Well, I mean, there was guys like, uh, uh, like Marty, Marty, Marty Reed, Marty Reed. Yeah. And, and, uh, just such good personalities. And, you know, that, that time period was great. Supercross had a lot of growth happening. Uh, the promoters really getting their stuff together. Um, we started filling the stadiums and, and, you know, but you think about it, the TV time and stuff was so bad compared to where it's at now. It's like, like yeah, you're going to put your, you know, you know, set your VCR to record it on ESPN two at, you know, three o'clock in the morning, you know, on a Tuesday or something. Right. You know, it's crazy that we saw any of those races ever, you know, like, Nowadays, you can watch it so so readily available. It's just just incredible. Yeah, and they still complain about it today. It's so it's so funny. But yeah. um, so we've never talked before to this day. Like t- until today, we never talked. But our paths have crossed. Um, back at Kenworthy's '96, you had just come off the track. You're sitting on a hay bale, and remember the cool off area was just like a hay bale, like right after the finish. Yeah. 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 So, so my dad puts me over the fence for some reason, and I'm this little kid running around back there. And I, I pat your back and I say, "Good job, man!" And like run back to my dad. But there is a photo of you sitting there, and I'm in the background of it. I I need to find that. So I love it. Yeah, there's no yeah, way you remember I'm, that, but it stayed probably in my mind. I'm like, get off me, kid. Probably you you're probably looking there. back like, what are you doing? But oh, that God. stuck with me to this day. I knew you wouldn't remember, but. You know, that's just a moment we had. So I thought I'd bring it up. Oh, man. I, I'm feeling closer to you already. You know what I mean? Is, we just, yeah, we have yeah. a bond from 96. Sort of kinship. Yep. Yep. I'm feeling it. And that next year, you show up in all black shift gear and it blew my mind as a seven-year-old. So, like, I don't, it was hot. Yeah. That race was interesting. Um, you know, that in 97, uh, Gainesville, Pete Fox, Todd Covey and the guys at at Fox and Shift, um, which was one company, obviously, mm-hmm. that, 
the public didn't know that shift was, was a part of Fox at the time, but, um, I, I had gotten into a routine of wanting to wear the black whenever it was the hottest. And I've always performed really well when it's hot. Like I love training. I love riding. I love racing. I love mountain biking when it's super hot. There's something about it that, that, that I just love it. I love the challenge of it. And, um, and so that, that year I had a real, I'm very routine oriented, like, like full OCD and all this stuff. But my routine is that before I left the Kawasaki rig, um, um, I would always have everything on except my goggles. Okay. So it's like when I stepped out of the rig, it was like time to go to battle type of vibe. And Jeremy Albrecht, my mechanic would ride the, he would take the bike, pit board, whatever, all that stuff up to the starting line. And I would always walk there. Oh, man. And the routine of, of walking is like when you're on the bike, yeah, people are high-fiving and all this, but you're kind of passing by everybody really quick. Well, when you walked, you were much closer to the fans, you know, and it's not like they're just industry people in the pits. I mean, the, the pits are full of fans, um, but at, but at, uh, at Triple Ohio there at Kenworthy's, you, we parked right by that big long fence. So I'd come out of the Kawasaki rig, like helmet on, gloves on. It's hot as shit. I'm sweating balls already. Like it's just mental, right? And you're walking down the fence, high fiving everyone. And if you think about it, all the fans have something really positive and encouraging to say to you. So it's like, why would you want to miss that? You know, it's like, could you imagine this morning you're getting ready for this podcast and you, and there's 250 people that are like, come on, Troy, good job. You know, kick ass on that podcast today. You're the best, blah, blah, blah. You know, let me get a pick before you do this podcast. That's true. You know, you know what I mean? You come in, you come in feeling pretty good about yourself. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, I'd be like, man, thanks. Yeah, yeah, all right. I want to kick ideas. ass with this podcast today. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, so, uh, and it was hot as shit, dude. I mean, it was hot. It was humid. There was no wind. Plus, you're in the trees down there, like no airflow. I mean, it was it was bad. And at and at Kenworthy's there, there, the entrance to the starting line was in the center, okay, by in the middle at the starter's box. Well, there's this big-ass tree, this big covered area where everybody was under the tree in the shade, and only J-Bone and I are at the, are at the entrance. And he's like, hey, you want me to put the umbrella up? I said, no. He's like, do you want me to fan you off? I said, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm sweating my ass off. And I look back and I see all the other riders that, that was going to race and they're all like ice bags on their neck and, you know, they're under the shade. And I'm just like, had that ability to just kind of soak up the, the energy from the sun and just, it was all this attitude, this mindset that like, these guys are done already, but I'm wearing the black gear, right? Which really by today's standards and things like a sweater the jersey was like it was so thick even for its time it was not not the right choice but it actually had decent airflow i uh, would wear a chest pro and stuff um but it had more to do with just a mindset of of i want to be here i'm accepting the heat you know and uh you know had just an amazing first moto there it was but it was hot dude it was hot. There's some video and some photos of after the race in that same area where you were talking about where, you know, I still had to do the TV interview. It's like helmet off, gloves off, jersey off, you know, boots off. And I remember um, I only wear socks uh, that come uh, just below my knee then. So I'm like, pull my socks off. Just so they were pulling my socks off. I've got my, my, my underwear and my pants and my knee braces on when I did the TV interview with uh, probably would have been Coons, you know? Um, I mean, it was hot and every, and, and if you look, I think Albertine was second that moto. And if you watch that race back, which I, which I had before is he was just like, like overheating, like, Holy shit, I can't take this. I was hot. Don't get me wrong, but I was comfortable with it, you know? Um, and, I, I, you know, I don't know whether there's something, you know, genetically that, that I, I just, 
you know, perform well in those situations or whether it's mental or what, but that it was, it was hot. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, it definitely stands out in time. You imagine Jet just completely just getting naked on the podium right now? Like, that. it just doesn't – times are different now, but, like, back then it was like, ah, he's just hot. Like, we're good. And everyone's screaming for you, like, go, Jeff, you know? But that was – that race was next level. You know, like I said, there was no wind. Yeah. The humidity was super high. I mean, I'm thinking that it was hotter than 100 degrees, and with the humidity, like, the heat index would have been way up there, like dangerous levels, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's a memorable day for sure. Um, great insight on that. Uh, so, okay, so kind of wrap this up here with, you know, Lake Havasu. I saw your video on your Instagram like, yesterday. Uh, just kind of, can you give me a rundown of what an average day of Lake Havasu was like with you and your buddies back in the day? And just tell us everything. Oh, we all want to know. Yeah, well, the, yeah, well, the one thing you got to remember is that, um, most most of our buddies and people that uh you know you maybe take friday off and then people gotta go back to work on they go back to work on monday um and even some of our buddies and and and, and whatnot you know come down friday after work and, well for for us though it was always like sunday's pro day because if you look at pro motocross back then amateur day it was friday saturday and the pros race on sunday so for us the joke was we would stay and Sunday would be just like every other day. Like that's pro day. You got to stay the extra day, you know, and, um, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) you know, we would wakeboard some, you know, every now and then, and then, and then the rest of it was going to Copper Canyon, uh, later in, in, it became, uh, we would go up to the uh, sandbar, uh, we would go up the river. Um, but, Copper Canyon was a, was a, was a legit deal back in those days. And that was what you would have seen in the crusty two film, um, with this double decker, uh, pontoon boat that I had, you know, people jumping off the rock a 75 foot jump off the rock and copper and it just used copper Canyon was just mental, you know, things you do in, you know, when you're in your twenties, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but a typical day would be, yeah, for sure. You're opening Coors Lights by ten, by ten a.m. Breakfast. Um, yeah, breakfast of champions. Yep. Hey, like this, like the slogan says, Coors Light won't slow you down. No, it doesn't. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. It makes things better. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so you're getting into Coors Lights. You know, everyone's having a good time. Music. You know, maybe you're wakeboarding and stuff a little bit, and then you're, you know going to the different places where there's the channel, uh, copper or sandbar, you know, you're kind of going between the different places, and, you know, you're just having a good time. You know, somebody always had all the jet ski guys were around, whether it was, uh, uh, uh you know, Victor Sheldon and, and, and just all the guys, um, um, all the, all the jet ski champions were, they were always hanging out with us and, and you know we all got on well and so just a lot of uh you know nonsense a lot of stuff that you do in your 20s crazy stuff and and, uh you know then uh, you you know the nights uh by the time the sun goes down you know you're pretty faded by then but um you know you then you go to uh to um uh, kokomo's which was this bar nightclub that was on uh right in the channel right at london bridge um, so then you have your, have a good time at Kokomo's, hopefully end up on the boat later on, late at night, uh, listening to some Led Zeppelin or Peter Frampton, something like that, kind of winding, winding your day down, uh, and then, you know, take it in and tie the boat up and then go do it again the next day. I can see why you did that a lot. That's, that's uh <laughs> that's a dream day right there. Do you still well, go? But, but, but it was so different than, you know, we didn't have smartphones then either. You know, somebody right. probably had cameras and things like that. I'm sure there were some cameras, but, not, you know, it wasn't a lot of video cameras, certainly, maybe some still photos. But, you know, you, you kind of go down there and have a bit of privacy and do your thing. And, and nowadays, you know, it's completely different. Do you still go because of, because of the smartphone? Uh, I haven't been in a while. No, certainly not on a on a trip like that. You know, I've yeah. gone down with my son and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I haven't, haven't been in a while. I've actually, been wanting to go uh, before the summer's over. 
You should get the whole gang together and just get all the buddies back together. Invite MC. <laughs> yeah, just get... <laughs> yeah, the whole crew. You know, have half the... of us have hair. <laughs> you know, have their crew yeah. and then your crew, but then like meet up and then just be like, you know, like just reminisce on old times and just if there's anything. Yeah, and that's and that's what was crazy. So Ralph Shaheen and I had multiple conversations about you know like about that that era, you know, and he said that he said the deal was you know other than maybe you know. You know, a few of the guys, the Rocco or, you know, Kudrowski, somebody like that. You know, for the most part, you know, you go down there on a weekend like that and McGrath's down there with his crew, whether it's like Button and Mark Easley and like like a number of different racers, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, then, it, like, I'm down there and, and, and I've got my buddies – you know, you got Phil Lawrence is down there and Ryan Hughes and just, you know, Nathan Ramsey be down there with us, Buddy Antonez, Stevenson, it just, you know, and, and we're all the top racers, right? So in the, in the respective classes, you know, you, I mean, there'd be 12 riders down there probably, um, um, you know, um, you know, on any, on any separate weekend. And then, you know, Monday comes around, it's time to go back to work and time to, time to start training and go to the next race. No, it's awesome. It, and to be honest, uh, I, I did some research with, with Denny, me and me and Denny, uh, talk pretty much every day or every week mostly. So he's a, he's a good dude still. And he talks very highly of you and it's, uh, it's cool to see you guys, like what all you've accomplished in your lives, like together and just all the fun you had. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, I mean, we had a good time. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, if you're wanting to become a professional athlete, probably not the best choices, uh, but that was the nineties. And the, to me, the nineties in motocross were a lot like what, uh, the sixties were in rock and roll, you know? So no, seriously, it was like, for me, looking back, it's nostalgia and, and, um, just growing up watching it, you guys, you and a few others just led the sport to what it is today. And um, it's really, really awesome to see what you guys did. It was a whole era that it'll never be, I don't know. It's, it's up there with the best eras in the, ever, I think. But that's just my personal opinion. Um, yep. Impressionable youth. Dude, Impressionable you did, youth. honestly. Because it was <laughs> like you were either an ambit guy or an MC guy. There really wasn't in between. And yeah. When I figured out what it was, I'm like, man, MC wins a lot, and this Emig guy, he's he can beat him. Like, so I was an Emig guy, even though I liked MC. So it was, you know, it's well, just- I appreciate that, you know, and I've and I've come to appreciate that that time period, and even this, you know, this rivalry that uh, McGrath and I had that you know seems to um, grow in in legend, if you will. Um, exactly. You know, it's not like you didn't race other racers, but there was just this something, this this friction between the two of us um, that led to uh, you know some really good racing and some good you know some good battles. And you know, I appreciate it more now than what I did then. And and even the fact that being able to live that life and to have that sort of challenge in my life and push myself uh, to a to the limits that I did. For those wins and for those championships, um, you know, was 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 really special because some people they never they never have something like that, um, and I was able able to live that um, the good with the bad, you know, or the bad with the good even, um, and I, and I appreciate uh, you know being able to um, have something like that to be a you know to be a part of my life. That's a perfect way to to end it up right there. I. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go back, go through the notes, and just come back with a... We're going to do this again. We have to, because I'm going to come back with another <laughs> list of questions. This was awesome. Uh, there's going to be so more, so much more, though. So I'm going to cut it for today, though. This You've gave me so much great stuff here, and thanks for your time. I only said, like, half hour, but it's it's Jeff Amick. I can't just do a half hour, you know? Oh, we're good. Yeah, we're, we're good. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate everybody listening. All right. That'll do it for another edition of the Squad Pod. The Emig edition. First off, thanks to you people for listening to all of my pods. Uh, the numbers are growing still. And thanks for sharing. Thanks for the comments. Thank you for the messages on social media. And uh, 
We're going to keep bringing you the best shows we can. I want to thank Bird Dog for putting me on the Verb Pod Network platform. That's all you, my man. I want to thank Chili Dog. Of course, my best friend, Chili Dog. No thanks to Slaw Dog again. No thanks at all. Like that. Ugh. Ugh. No thanks. I want to thank my kids, Bub Dog and Duke Dog. I think I'm going to get uh, Bub Dog on here to make me an intro. So that's going to be coming next week, I think. We're going to work on that. We'll see if he's in. And uh, thank you to my lovely wife, Ginger Dog. I think um, we're going to be going to Iron Man in a couple weeks here. and She's very excited. So look for that. We're going to make some really good content from there, as always. Um, thank you all. Yeah, that'll do it. We'll see you next week.